Well, it's a great pleasure to be here. Thanks very much, Jane, for the warm welcome, and uh, thanks to all the organizers for putting together a fascinating program and also for arranging this wonderful weather. I, en I envy that, uh, that ability. Uh, it's, it has been a while since I've visited uh, the Ibn Arabi Society, and uh, my excuse was that I wasn't working on Ibn Arabi, but when we started to talk about this weekend, I realized that I was. And so uh, I'm going to share with you a new project. This is really just getting underway. And it circles around uh, the question of how did, how would a Hindu scholar understand Sufism and particularly Ibn Arabi? And I have an example to propose to you, someone whom I have uh, discovered who I think has been completely forgotten for almost 200 years, but well, uh, will repay our attention. And um, I'm also interested in the question of how this Persian-speaking Hindu, in his understanding of Sufism and of Islam, how that impacted his own self-conscious interpretation of Indian religions. And this raises a number of important issues of cross-tradition uh, translation and interpretation. And I would also like to introduce a couple of, if you like, uh, theoretical issues. That is, for instance, uh, I think we need to historicize the projection of European ideas of mysticism onto the East. Some of you are familiar with the work of Richard King in his book on Orientalism and Religion, in which he talked about how the concept of uh, Vedanta or uh, Indian philosophy was articulated in ways that fulfilled some of the inner objectives of European religious thought in the 19th century. Uh, and there's a lot to be said for this approach. Um, and I think once we expand the investigation to include Sufism, there is a well-worn uh, trope or argumentation about the, uh, the way in which uh, particularly the ideas associated with Ibn Arabi, perhaps a simplified version, as, as uh, Bill Chittick has pointed out, Vatat al-Wajud is not a term that Ibn Arabi used, but it's a widely uh, employed phrase uh, in India and frequently asserted to be uh, substantially uh, identical with uh, Vedanta. And so where did this come from? Who were the first people who started to do this? Was it the Europeans? Or, as I'm going to suggest, more likely the, uh, the Persianate uh, Hindus? Um, one other observation I want to make before getting into the the main subject is that we had a wonderful exposition yesterday from Bill about that uh, very famous poem on the religion of love from Ibn Arabi. You know, for some people, that's the only part of Ibn Arabi they know. And one thing that uh, Bill did not allude to was how widely this poem is cited as uh, supposed evidence for Ibn Arabi's appreciation of the unity of all religions a point that was heavily emphasized, for instance, by Fritjof Schuon and others. Uh, 
and I have a, one of my PhD students at UNC, Gregory Lipton, is doing a dissertation on the, the reception of Ibn Arabi's ideas in European and American thought. And he is drawing attention to the way in which Ibn Arabi's thought has been systematically de-Islamicized uh, in a remarkable way. And so these are sort of background issues that may be worth returning to. Now, I first of all want to situate uh, this presentation in the history of the engagement of Indian scholars with Persian culture. And we can look back principally to the Mughal Empire in India, beginning in the late uh, 16th century, particularly under the direction of the Prime Minister Abul Fazl, who was a biographer of Akbar and uh, one of the principal authors of the uh, ideology underlying the regime. But during his time and afterwards, the expansion of the bureaucracy of the Mughals was accomplished through the Persian language. And this necessitated the employment of a large bureaucracy of mostly Hindu secretaries who were known as munshis. The munshi, this is the term for the master of insha or uh, epistolography, official correspondence and documentation. These are people who are trained in everything from accounting to history and literature. They had to be able to write extremely elegant memoranda and letters and histories and like some other highly literary cultures in China and Japan, your future depended upon your ability to control the language and literature. And I want to give you a short uh, quotation from one of the masters of this uh, tradition, uh, who was a, a munshi named Chandarban, who wrote poetry in Persian under the pen name Brahman. And he was a close associate of Darashikoh and an accomplished poet in his own right. And in one of his writings, he addressed uh, some advice to his son, Khaja uh, Tejban, which I'd like to quote to you because of the way in which it lays out the curriculum of ethics, history, and poetry that was deemed to be necessary for the formation of the intellectual world of the Munshi. He says, initially, it's necessary for one to acquire a training in the Mughal system of ethics, akhlaq. It is appropriate to listen always to the advice of elders and accordingly by studying the akhlaqi nasari, akhlaqi jalali, these are important Persian texts on philosophical ethics, Gulistan and Bostan, the two classic poetic works in Persian by uh, Sheikh Saadi. One should accumulate one's own capital and gain the virtue of knowledge. When you practice what you have learned, your code of conduct too will become firm. Notice how the internalization of this literary tradition is meant to be an ethical formation of character. And he goes on about that. But then he starts to talk about the, the curriculum of, of Persian studies. He says, although the science of Persian is vast and almost beyond human grasp, in order to open the gates of language, one should read the Golestan, Bustan, the letters of Mullah Jami to start with. When one has advanced somewhat, one should read key books on norms and ethics, as well as history books. And he lists a whole series of historical texts, primarily on the Timurid empires, culminating in the Akbar Name of Abul Fazl. The benefits of these will be to render your language elegant, also to provide you knowledge of the world and its inhabitants. These will be of use when you are in the assemblies of the learned. 
Now, of the master poets, here are some whose collections I read in my youth and the names of which I am writing down. When you have some leisure, read them, and they will give you both pleasure and relief, increase your abilities, and improve your language. They are Hakim Senoi, Maulana Rum, Shamsi Tabriz, Sheikh Fariduddin Attar, Sheikh Saadi, Haja Hafez, uh, Jamaluddin Abdurrazak, Kamal Ismail, Mullah Jami, Onsuri, Ferdosi, Khakani, Amir Khosro, Hassan Dethlevi, and the list goes on and on and on. And then he says, may my good and virtuous son understand that when I finished reading these earlier works, I then desired to turn my attention to the later poets and writers and started collecting copies of their works. And when I finished them, I gave some of them to my my disciples. Some of of these are as follows. Ahli, Helali, Muhtasham, Bashi, Qazi, Nur, Nargis, Mahfi, Omidi. By the way, some of these names are fairly obscure in the history of Persian literature. But this goes on and on and on. And frankly, if you want to have an inferiority complex about your own mastery of Persian literature, just read this passage. (laughs) Now, there are a couple of scholars who have really opened up our uh, understanding of this world of the Munshi, particularly uh, Muzaffar Alam and Sanjay Subramanian, who have contributed a couple of very uh, important articles on this subject. And they've drawn attention, among other things, to the way in which these uh, Hindu munshis were personally engaged with the world of Sufism. This was true on a personal level because, for instance, in their account of uh, Nekrai in the 1690s, we see his very... uh, close personal engagement with a Chishti shrine of Ashraf Jahangir Semnani, who was uh, active in the early 15th century um, and whose place is a source of miraculous uh, events. Uh, but it's also striking to see that he, writing during the time of Aurangzeb, where there was a certain amount of, shall we say, religious tension going on in, in India, he starts to talk about Vahtadeva Jude and that is to say, not only the unity of existence, but he talks about the vahtate adyan, the unity of religions. This is in a political chronicle he's using this, so you wouldn't find this in a separate treatise on religion. Um, other figures in the 17th and 18th century are manifestations of this, this tendency. Sujan Rai Bhandari was uh, known as a, as a historian uh, of uh, India who also drew upon, quite interestingly, the, the whole legacy of the translations of Sanskrit texts into Persian. And I think this indicates the extent to which we see the formation of an intellectual class of Hindus who in some respects were more comfortable reading Hindu scriptures in Persian translation. And this raises enormous questions about the epistemology of understanding. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. But I'll give you a couple of other examples. Uh, Rai Chaturman, in a recently edited work on uh, the uh, Mughal Empire in 1790, is another one who talks about this. By the way, it's also interesting to see that most of these Hindu munshis employ all of the rhetorical features of uh, Islamicate literature when they're writing a text. In other words, it begins with the Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. However, a number of them leave out the praise of the Prophet Muhammad that would be normally expected for a Muslim author. Although some of them do include that, or even mention of the first four caliphs or whatever. 
Um, but this is an interesting kind of variation that one sees. Um, and there are many examples one could give. Occasionally there's someone who actually converts to Islam, such as uh, Mirza Muhammad Hassan Qatil. That was his pen name, Qatil Lahori, who died in 1817. He converted to Shiism and wrote a very important text on the religions of India for a visiting Iranian uh, scholar. So um, what one of the major questions is, which I have to raise, is uh, in all of this discussion that's going on in Persian with a highly Arabized vocabulary, uh, with a lot of Islamic references, uh, what is the effect of talking about Indian religions, what we call Hinduism today, uh, and how is it really understood by the people who were doing this? So I really became uh, sensitized to this in recent uh, research context when I discovered a couple of works that were written in Persian uh, shortly after 1800, which were also sources for the first British colonial understandings of Indian religions. And so we have an interesting threshold here of transition from the Mughal world to the British colonial world. And by the way, it was at that, that time when words like Buddhism were invented, 1803 first time it appears in English. It, and it was, you know, the concept of the European ideas of religion were somehow being used as a template for understanding the, uh, the societies of, of the East, particularly those under colonial domination. And so the two uh, examples that I became aware of, one of which I'm going to focus on today, were done right after 1800. One of them was called Riyaz al-Mazahib, the Gardens of Religions. And it was written by a Brahmin named Maturanath at the request of a British official named John Glynn, who wanted to know about all the religions of India. And the British, British, remember, by the way, were all studying Persian at this time because it was a language of administration. All the tax records were in Persian. If you wanted to advance in the British East India service, you had to know Persian. And so they commissioned all these works at this time. And so... Um, I won't go into too many details about that one, but uh, many of these were also illustrated with artwork in what our art historians call the company style, where they would hire uh, painters who had been trained in the Mughal style of painting, but they wanted them to do things that were more in the direction of what would become photographic realism uh, when the technology became available. They wanted to be able to identify the different castes and tribes and different groups. And so some of these works are accompanied by illustrations. And so um, I'm actually going to pass one copy around for you to look at so you can see it because I didn't prepare all the slides. Plus there's 49 illustrations and that would take us quite a while to get through. Uh, <clears throat> but the second one I ran into is called Silsileye Jogian. Now you might recognize the word silsila in the beginning of the title, this is the term Arabic word for chain, which is also applied to the uh, what we call the Sufi orders. Uh, the second word, jogian, jogi is the North Indian pronunciation of the term we now commonly use in the Sanskrit form of yogi. Uh, so what's interesting is that a term from the history of Sufism is being used to describe the organization of the yogis, of the ascetics of India. And it's a description of 49 different groups of ascetics uh, and it was uh, written by somebody who I'm now going to introduce to you, whose name was Sital Singh, who uh, was a munshi to the Raja of Benares and was also employed 
by the British, and this particular work seems to have been commissioned by uh, a British official named John Dean. Uh, now, those two works that I uh, have just mentioned, the, the Gardens of Religions by Mathuranath and the Silsilie uh, Jogian of uh, Sital Singh, were the two principal sources used by the early British Orientalist H. H. Wilson in his 1828 work called A Sketch of the Religious Sects of the Hindus. This was basically the first work on Hinduism in English, and it was based upon these Persian works by Hindu scholars who were talking about the religions of India using the vocabulary of Sufism and uh, Islamic hate culture. So this is really a, a very complicated kind of project. Now I can come back to those uh, texts on, on uh, the Indian religions, uh, but I want to get into introducing Sital Singh and his engagement with Sufism. Um, but uh, I, will come, I will be quoting some uh, passages from it because This, uh, the chain of yogis, not only has the description of these 49 uh, different ascetic groups, it also has a, a, a lengthy philosophical argument about the nature of Vedanta, which is carried out entirely in Persianate uh, language. There's not a single theological reference uh, to Indian sources in this. And it concludes with an enumeration of the population of Benares according to religion, caste, and profession which was evidently what the British were really interested in uh, and became sort of the basis for their later development of the census, which was one of the key instruments for the control of Indian society. So there's a lot going on in here. Uh, but back to, uh, to Sital Singh. And uh, perhaps I'll pass this, this text around in case you'd like to glance at the, the drawings. Now, um, just a word about the manuscripts, because these have all been sort of buried away in different places. Uh, the first copy I found was in the India Office Library, and it's illustrated with 49 small cartoon-like uh, drawings of the different types of ascetics, uh, evidently meant as a kind of a field guide to uh, identification. And it also has uh, scrawled pencil transcriptions of the names of the different groups in English uh, that laboriously spill out the names of the groups, probably done by Wilson. Uh, recently, thanks to the search engines of the internet, I was able to discover another copy in the British Library under a different title called uh, Fokara'e Hind, the Fakirs of India, which has full-page, glorious illustrations uh, of remarkable quality. I don't think anybody's even noticed the existence of this manuscript. And then um, also I was able to discover that in the Bibliothèque Nationale in France, we have the copy that's going around now, a very rare lithographed printed edition from 1854. If you know anything about the history of printing in uh, Muslim countries, that's incredibly uh, early. Uh, it's kind of wretched quality but um, it's still nonetheless interesting. And it was published under the supervision of a gentleman named Frederick Hall, who was professor at the Benares Government College. 
And so in 1854, this was still in, in circulation, even though the, term had, the, the text was written in 1800. Um, so I won't go into the details of this text at the moment, but uh, let me return to Sital Singh and his other works. He had established a significant reputation not only as a Munshi, but as a Persian poet with a strong predilection for Sufism. It is said that he was born in 1776 and entered the services of the Raja of Benares, uh, Udit Narayan Singh, uh, as a Mosaheb, although the dates are a little bit confusing about this. Uh, and he was an accomplished linguist and administrator, and he was regarded as a master in the knowledge of Hikmat, uh, philosophy, and a great poet himself. And he used the pen named Bihod, or selfless, for his Persian uh, productions. And this includes, quite remarkably, a commentary on the Arabic uh, verses of Ibn Arabi in the Fosus al-Hikam, and I'll come back to that. His disciple, Ram Sita Singh, whose pen name was Fikrat, wrote a biography of Sital Singh under the title the Realities of the Selfless One, Haqiqat Hoye Bihod, published in 1848 in Lucknow. And then I have tracked down one copy that's supposed to exist in Calcutta at the Asiatic Society, and one of my correspondents is working on trying to get them to, to locate it. It was described in a catalog published 100 years ago, but no one seems to know where it is right now. So wish me luck. But his collected Persian writings appeared in 1871, Actually, that was the second edition. There was an earlier one, which I haven't been able to find, uh, under the title, Khayali Bihodi, The Imagination of Selflessness. And, um, and I'm going to give you some samples from that. But in addition to his immersion in Sufi poetry and metaphysics, his cosmopolitan tendencies can also be seen in his close friendship with a Greek scholar named Demetrios Galanos, who lived in Benares from 1793 until his death in 1833. And Sital Singh appears to have been the executor of the will of Galanos and is said to have composed a Hindustani epigraph for him in which he calls him the Plato of the century. It seems likely that Sital Singh inspired Galanos to translate some important Sanskrit texts, including the Devi Mahatmya, a, a well-noted work on the goddess, into modern Greek. We also have some accounts of him from uh, Christian missionaries like Charles Benjamin Leupold, who lived in Benares, and refers to his conversations with Munshi Sital Singh, whom he describes as one of the most intelligent of the natives at Benares. And so uh, he's someone who really had quite a wide circle of uh, encounters. Now, one final point before I give you some examples. I want to refer to this issue of translation, uh, because these authors are... Uh, presenting names and terms from the Sanskrit tradition and offering equivalents in Persian, but there's a lot going on here. And I think it's important not to, imply, not to apply mechanical or imperialistic notions of translations to this process by assuming that a classical dictionary definition approach furnishes an authoritative standard from which all other possibilities are deviations. And I'd like to refer to the work of an art historian named Finbar Barry Flood, who... Uh, has produced a remarkable work on the 
uh, centuries of engagement between Indic and uh, Middle Eastern societies through exchange of material culture and objects. It's called Objects of Translation, in fact. And in there he remarks, translation as transformation has the advantage of displacing a backward-oriented and often ideologically charged source-mongering with a more forward-looking emphasis on innovation and mediation. Now, I bring this up because from the time of Sir William Jones, there has been a lot of criticism cast on the uh, quality of the Persian translations from Sanskrit because they didn't adhere to the uh, style of the European translations from the classics. And they were felt to be betrayals of the original text because they imposed too many new uh, foreign uh, ideas in the middle. But what this neglects is the way in which these translations served as media for understanding of the Indian religious traditions for generations of these Persianate Hindus. And it dismisses that as irrelevant to the history of the tradition. Uh, not only that, when you translate something, its meaning changes. You don't think of the original in the same way, the original term, as, as you do after you've translated it and used some kind of equivalent from another language. So what did Sital Singh actually do? <clears throat> oh, one more point about the translation issue. Um, and I'll give, give you a brief example. At the beginning of his text on uh, Indian religions, he just has a wonderful passage where he talks about uh, what we call in Persian the divine decree, and what the Indians called Maya. You catch that term, Maya, which we often term, translate as illusion and so forth? He's used a Persian phrase, the divine decree, to render that. There's an awful lot of work going on in that kind of translation. Um, and I would just like to mention that there's a really interesting project going on at the moment uh, called Perso Indica, which I'm involved with, which is based in Europe and has a, a growing website. But this is an international group of scholars that's hoping to document and analyze this entire corpus of translations from Sanskrit into Persian that uh, went on for about nine centuries and which forms a major transmission of knowledge from one culture to another, comparable to the Greek uh, scientific and philosophical translations into Arabic or the Buddhist text in, uh, from Sanskrit into Chinese and Tibetan. Now, the, the writings of Sital Singh in his uh, Persian text are called, uh, as I mentioned, the, uh, the, the imagination of the selfless. And I'm going to give you a couple of examples of his writings. He's got a collection of aphorisms called the Nokati Bihod, the subtleties or uh, fine points. And this demonstrates the, his literary style and the way he expresses himself in Persian. You'll notice the balanced phrases that he uh, employs, but also a high degree of philosophical reflection. A subtlety. One scholar says that God is intelligible and creation is perceptible. And another states that God is perceptible and creation is intelligible. The first opinion is without reference and should be heard from the masses, while the second theory is divine and should be seen from the best of humanity. 
in the last phrase there, he's using a, a reference which many Sufis would normally apply to the Prophet Muhammad. But I suspect that he's using this in a somewhat more uh, universal manner. Uh, another subtlety, and these are illustrated with poems. No one knows his father except by the report of his mother. <laughs> Can't argue with that. <laughs> Nor does one find the essence except by the guidance of the attributes and influences. Since the divine attributes are unlimited, why do you want them to be concealed in themselves as they are? They are in the comprehensive existence. Kaone jame a term from Ibn Arabi, which is the index of the book of existing things. If you seek, you will find that you are he. These are the first two paragraphs of this little uh, treatise on uh, his subtleties. He's got a collection of poems, of ghazals and rubaiis and other uh, Persian forms. I, I looked through them to find something of interest and found uh, this one has kind of some tantalizing references with the uh, Radif Bechoda, uh, by God. I have nothing but the beloved's light, by God. I have no other friend but you, by God. I'm always drunk on the wine of your beauty. I have no sober heart, by God. Love made me sorrowful and sad. I have no other sufferings, by God. From the fever of your love comes helplessness. I cannot deny anyone, by God. I am the slave of the love of idols, bihod. I have nothing to do with God, by God. <laughs> Knowing this is by a Hindu that has a special zing to it at the end. Now, let me get into the more metaphysical stuff. All right, so we have in this collection a relatively short but dense 15-page uh, commentary on uh, poems from the Fosuz al-Hikam. And this is the pretext for addressing this conference today. And I want to give you a sample of how he does this, and there's also a couple of other texts that are, uh, that are relevant as well. Here's the opening paragraph. And so uh, basically what he does is he takes, um, in this first example, uh, five lines from the uh, Fuss of Noah, and then he has uh, four other passages of poetry uh, ranging from three to 11 lines, and he goes into a lengthy discussion of each one of these lines from a kind of uh, systematic, philosophical, uh, reflective point of view in which I defy you to find any references to Hinduism. So here's how he begins with um, the verse which, from Ibn Arabi which says, And if you speak of transcendence, tanzih, you are a limiter. Here, Sital Singh informs us, limiter is an active participle. That is, if you're speaking of the transcendence of God, haq, then in that moment you are limiting. That is, you are one who is making a limit to the essence of God because transcendence is an expression for the conceptualization of the essence of God as unconditioned. But that conceptualization as unconditioned is also a limit for God because the denial of the limit is a limit. The meaning of the verse is this, that if the essence of God transcends the world, then at that moment, what is the world and what is God? This necessarily implies duality, which is impossible. So unconditioned existence is impossible, like the teeth of a demon. 
this is an Arabic expression, which shows his familiarity with the sort of refined vocabulary. For if you conceive of the essence of God as unconditioned, then at that moment he is either outside the world or inside it. According to the first, he must have a place beyond this world and is deduced from being external, whether above or below, right or left, in front or behind. So he must be in all directions or in one of the six directions. If he's in every direction, he contains the world in spherical form and is thus everywhere. Then the essence of God would be bodily, for being container and contained is of the degree of bodies. And since the essence of God would be a body of spherical shape containing this world, it's necessarily a distinction without a difference, since the entire world of bodies belongs to the category of the elements and the masses of body, but these are not the essence of God. The body that contains them is not a body, but is God, and this is the difference. Now, this is a very scholastic, philosophical kind of argumentation, and you can see he's using the sort of reductio ad absurdum technique to take these arguments to their limit and then show that they are... are, But this was like only about the first of... This is about 20% of the commentary on that verse. Um, He's got another little treatise in the same collection, which is uh, a more overtly original engagement with uh, Sufi uh, metaphysical uh, themes, and this is called the commentary on the mother of the names, Sharhe Omul Esma, and uh, at the end it's referred to as the commentary on the seven names, because what he's doing here is taking seven of the divine names, Hay Alim Murid Qadir Sami Basir Kalim, which not only function, of course, in Islamic theology but also in Sufi uh, zikr recollection practice of the attributes of God. And um, I want to read you a couple of passages from this uh, little treatise. He says, Let it be clear that the difference in consequent influences is a difference in forms, and the difference in forms is the breath of the merciful one. Nafas rahman The breath of the merciful one is not, by reason of that absolute existence, in every that, in a single form. And if it comes to be in one that, colored by a color, it is as though it were a new clothing. That last phrase in Arabic. And a new clothing is the cause of the non-existence of the limitation of clothing. And the non-existence of the limitation of clothing is the cause of the non-existence of the limitation of the state of eternity, for the owner of the clothing. The clothes of the clothing is the expression of the bindings and specifications, and the necessity of bindings and specifications is by reason of the seven names. And then he goes into an analysis of these seven Arabic names from the 99 names of God and their function in constituting uh, creation. And the way he concludes this is also interesting. He says, It is not hidden that however much the manifestation of all these influences and attributes, which exist by reason of the blessed names, is seen in the comprehensive existence, that is, the revered human, Hazrat Insan, in a most complete and most perfect aspect, and in the same way in the noblest of creation and the vicegerent of the merciful, Khalifat Ar-Rahman. Nevertheless, since the cause of the effects of the blessed names is not in a single time or place, the manifestation of the influences of these names is according to difference in capacity and substratum, 
so it is evident everywhere. This is a rather dense passage. What I find remarkable here is the um, very deliberate placement of some key references. The Hazrat uh, Insan is obviously an invocation of the notion of the perfect human being, highly developed in Ibn Arabi's uh, view. And he's also referring to the noblest of creation and the vicegerent of the merciful, which any Muslim reader would refer to the Prophet Muhammad. But he is immediately backed away from the temporal and uh, spatial specification of that, uh, of that semi-divine uh, manifestation by saying that this is for all times and places, according to capacity. So this may be, and obviously I'm just at the beginning point of doing the analysis here, uh, this may be an indication of the way in which this uh, Hindu intellectual drew deeply on the well of Sufi metaphysics but moved it into his own realm of reflection in a universalizing fashion. Now, I think my time is coming. Okay, just I'll do, I have time for one more uh, passage that I'd like to give to you. Uh, and this is the conclusion to his work on the chain of the yogis. So we can come back to that and ask, you know, what is the language of Islamic and Sufi uh, reference that is being used in this remarkable presentation. So in the conclusion he says, and uh, I'm, I'm just going to give you the beginning of this because it actually goes on for about 10 pages in the same kind of metaphysical debate format. It is neither hidden nor concealed from the realizers of the mysteries and the wayfarers of the path of reality. Sounds very Sufi to me that all these different religious teachings, Mazaheb, and various religions, Adyan, which have been written about for the comprehension of seekers and students, namely the contents of the book that he has just completed, the 49 different uh, Hindu ascetic groups, they only differ and diverge in terms of external correctness, ego display, and showing off. Otherwise, in reality, the fundamental path, tariq, and teaching of truth, mazhab has no difference. And that is Vedanta. You heard it here today first. <laughs> Vedanta is mazhab Vedanta, that is divinity, ilahiyat which is the point of all teachings of the Hindus and is accepted by visionaries and sages. One who knows that is a Vedantin, that is, a sage and philosopher, Hakimo Felasuf. They say that however much the author himself has been deserving to see their greatness and stature, he first began writing about the conditions of this teaching and the high praises of its pure jewels, and he purified and honored the tongue of his pen. But for this that using analogy after transcendence, tashbih and tanzih, is the cause of prolixity and vanity. Then truth has no branches and its discussion is suspended. So thinking to complete this treatise, he has produced some lines on the realities, on the realities. Now Vedanta, that is the end of the Veda, is the uttermost divine core, lobe lobabe al-babe ilahi, and in the beliefs of the Hindus, 
This is the chosen teaching of Vishnu, Mahadeva, and Brahma, who are the authors of destiny. Karkonane takdir. But the manifestation of this treasure in this abode and its composition, in fact, is this very grace of Vyasa, the traditional author of all of these important texts and scriptures, whom they consider one of the 24 avatars of Vishnu. It spells the term avatar in Persian. That is, Vishnu himself, having become embodied in the form of Vyasa, gave instruction and guidance for all creatures to Brahmins and Kshatriyas. Although the reality of this teaching and commentary and explanation from the extensive books of divinity and the volumes of the Vedanta, which have been mostly translated into the Persian language, this reality is clear and obvious to enlightened observers, yet here is a summary by way of abbreviation and abridgment. And he provides a uh, 10-page scholastic uh, reflection on the nature of the first cause that would be completely at home in any treatise of Islamic philosophy. So to what extent did a Persian-speaking munshi like Sital Singh not only draw upon, not only engage in, but come to personally embody the teachings of Sufism and Ibn Arabi? I hope you have a better answer in about a year. But thanks very much. <laughs>